I went out and got that Ganesh. You know what I mean? I, I knew that I needed one, but I didn't necessarily know why. I just knew it was a thing when I first got my car, and, and so I got it. I think that's the same for a lot of us. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American community. My guest this week is Kunal Patel, a rapper and entertainment lawyer. Kunal aka Kali is the rapper behind songs like Ganesh on the Dash and Royalty. He's performed and produced with A.R. Rahman, gotten his music on a PlayStation game, and has cleared over 9,000 monthly listens on Spotify. Of course, he's only rapping to support his side hustle as a lawyer. Or maybe that's the other way around, can't find my notes, but we do talk about it on the episode. As an entertainment lawyer, Kunal has worked with companies like Universal and Apple. On this episode, we chat about collaborating with South Asian artists, what it was about rappers like Tupac that left him inspired, and what it's like being married to a fellow musician. He shares how hanging around studios as a rapper pushed him towards a career in law and why he started that career at a divorce law firm. Lastly, we touch on a docu-short that Kunal self-produced, which was inspired by a question he asked while wedding planning and by his experience with the lack of transparency in Hindu rituals and temples. Without further ado, Kunal Patel, welcome to Brown People We Know. When you said you'd come on the podcast, I literally got away from my desk. I went downstairs and I just laid down on the carpet for two minutes because I was like, this guy that I've been listening to on Spotify is like coming on my podcast. I was super stoked. I appreciate that, man. I, I really do. You know, I think that that's, that's, a, that's an interesting concept to me, man. I'm happy somebody wants to talk to me. Like, I'm happy to be here. So that's very, very novel to me. I love carpet. I love carpet, so I'm happy you lied down on carpet because it's just, it's not a story I need to rehash, but I, I like lying down on carpet too. I think it's soft and comfy. I also think it's very dirty as shit, but it's got its plus sides. It was, I was a little bit confused why I went downstairs. There's plenty of carpet upstairs, but. You know. <laughs> yeah, and the downstairs is the one that's probably the most trodden on, so you should have just stayed upstairs. I didn't think it through. I didn't think it through. So. <laughs> so. Uh, Kunal, you started listening to rap at a young age, and you talk about being drawn to artists like DMX and Tupac. What resonated with you about those artists? I've spent some time thinking about it. Like, I was introduced to Tupac's Hit Him Up. That's the first rap song I ever heard. And then the first rap album I really paid attention to was DMX's It's Dark and Hell is Hot, which just from the title should tell you how, like, gritty it is. And I think it was, like, maybe I was sixth grade, seventh grade. I... I don't know. I don't know exactly. But those songs had a profound impact on me. And hearing those particular artists, I think, definitely had a profound impact on me because I love Tupac. He's my greatest of all time. But I gravitate towards artists like Tupac, like DMX, like Pusha T, Big Crit, Nipsey Hussle. It's their conviction. I've thought about it for a really long time. Like, I believe what they're saying. And that's always appealed to me from when I was young. I was like, wow. When Tupac says on, on Tupac's Hit Him Up, when he says, I will come there and bomb on you motherfuckers, I actually, I remember a feeling of fear. I do remember that because that was when it was the East Coast, West Coast shit. And I was like, is this dude going to bomb us? Like, <laughs> And I had that feeling. Like, I legitimately had that feeling. And so that is definitely what I gravitate 
definitely what I gravitate towards, the conviction of certain artists. And I think that's what powers a lot of the music I make too. Like, if I'm not going to believe it, then I doubt anyone else is going to believe it. I love a good punchline. I love punchlines. I love metaphors. I love all that stuff. I wish I could write wacky 16s like how Lil Wayne does. I do from time to time. I can. Like, once every five years, I can write a really cool 16 where I'm just bouncing around on different patterns and subjects. But my shit really is just the real conviction stuff. I can definitely hear your story in it. Ganesh on the dash, the first two lines are like, they think I'm fresh on the path that you see Ganesh on the dash. All of us kind of have this thing of like code switching and, and that kind of stuff is not something that Tupac could probably, I mean, Tupac definitely did not have Ganesh on the dash, right? No, definitely so, not. Maybe he did. We did not, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know Tupac. But uh, there's a quote of yours that I really love. I think there's entirely too much dancing, sex, drugs, and bow ties in the game right now. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it shouldn't exist. I'm just saying there's too much of it. I think I really agree with that. Two of my favorite songs are Look What You've Done and They Reminisce. There's like an element of storytelling that just seems to be lost today, right? Mm -hmm. Why do you think that's kind of fading? Does it have anything to do with streaming? And why do you think you were able to resist that urge? Interesting. Yeah, interesting question. Did I say bow ties? Did I really say bow ties? You I said feel bow like ties. That's, that's such a horrible generalization for me. Because <laughs> I can't remember the last rapper I've seen with a bow tie on. Maybe Logic? Yeah, may, maybe. Maybe Logic. Who knows? Yeah, I think I think that a lot of artists are just making what's easy. In this era where you can create music so fast, I always had this really weird issue when people were like, yeah, man, we were in the studio uh, yesterday and we did like 10 songs back to back, bang, bang, bang. I always had this really weird thought whenever I heard somebody say that. That was like a badge of honor for a lot of people to say that, to be like, yeah, me and so-and-so were in the studio and we did like 15 tracks yesterday. And I'd just be like, how many of those were good? Just because you can create 15 tracks real easy, that doesn't mean all of them were dope. And I think that that's kind of the integral part that's being lost, which is artists nowadays, for whatever reason, they're just making what comes easy. I guess like maybe what has melody for them, like that comes naturally, like things like that. And it's all cool. It's, it's, it's totally fine. But there's an element to just like sitting there and thinking through shit that's been lost. And that's what's led to like an influx of a lot of stuff that's quite honestly, like you sound like an old head when you say it, but objectively, like when you're making 15 songs in a day, objectively, one of them might be good, might be good. But we're getting all of them. So we're getting an influx of just not great stuff. And I've been able to resist it, I guess, because I'm just naturally like kind of like a hard headed person when it comes to certain things. I actually think I'm really malleable and like compromised on many things. But on my music, at least, I hate when somebody tells me what I should try to do. I just do what I do. That's it. So I don't even know if it's resistance in the form of like, yeah, I'm fighting for everybody and fuck these people. That's like a real old head thing to do, right? Like to be like, y'all don't know good music. I make good music and I'm I'm still making this stuff so that you guys will recognize it one day. Like, no, that's not that's not what I'm doing. This is naturally how I am. I have to think about my music. I can't make 15 tracks in one day. Like I'm lucky if I can make one. There has to be a concept to it. There has to be a theme. There has to be there has to be a reason for why I'm saying this stuff and why I want you to believe me when I say it. To your point about conviction, that takes a lot of reflection, right? Like figuring out what you're actually thinking, getting the words right. Yeah. And so if you're making 15 songs in a night, you don't have time to really sit and think about what your message is. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think it's important. Like, you know, if you want to just fool around in the studio one night and just make 15 songs, by all means, do that. You know what I'm saying? I, I would love to do that too. If I, ha if I hit a night 
where I can make 15 songs, oh man, I'd be fucking happy. I wouldn't tell anybody to stop that. It's just an issue when that's all it is. All we're getting are these kind of very loosely thought through things. And while I get you want to be true to the feeling and be true to the emotion and the melody and stuff like that, you also need to be true to like the thought process behind some of this stuff. And we need to put some thought into it. Do you think that's why so many of your songs start as freestyles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that I think that might be why. Like, I don't write a song unless something hits me, right? So I can go through beats and I'll just keep listening. And I can even like the beat. But if I don't start, like that first line, they think I'm fresh on the pad. I got Ganesh on the dash. That came to me like this. Like, that was so fast. And I knew that that was how I wanted to start that song. And that was the cadence. And this is how I should be doing it. And that's how I know when I've got something. And when my songs start off that way, it's very easy for me to write. Like I wrote Ganesh on the Dash very quickly. A lot of the songs that I've put out, they are written pretty quickly, but it takes a while to to catch that inspiration. It's like, I'll be sitting there for a while listening to stuff, thinking, it literally just thinking. I'll be staring at my computer screen like, what do I want to talk about? Or like, what does this beat tell me? And then when it hits, I have to be smart enough to be like, all right, let me write that down and let me keep that going. So when did you go from writing music to actually putting it out there? Because I think those are two very different things. Writing music, you're producing, you're honing your craft, putting it out. It's a lot more complicated. Now you're thinking about distribution. Now you might be influenced by what people are listening to and what they aren't listening to. Mm -hmm. So like, when did that happen for you? And what was that transition like? You know, that's a good, that's a good question. That's really, I don't know that I've thought about that because I initially started writing I started writing poetry because Bollywood movies. I thought I'm a nerd. I look like a fool. I have these Coke bottle glasses. How am I gonna? How am I ever gonna get a girlfriend? The movies tell me you gotta write poetry and like do shit like that and make these big scenes and things like that. So that's how I started. And eventually, at some point, I was like, you know what? It would be cool to record this. That would be even more unique. Imagine if I recorded this and gave this to a girl. I was clearly not thinking that that would be some creepy shit, right? But that was the initial jump. I've always had a sense of rhythm, I guess. When I started, there were other rappers out, you know, other Indian rappers out and things like that. But I can say this in all objective fairness, they couldn't fucking rap to the beat. They just couldn't. And I couldn't understand how anyone liked these guys because nothing they said was on beat. It didn't make sense. Meanwhile, I was lucky enough that I was able to make that transition really fast. Like I could write things and I would know when you know, when I was practicing it that, oh, this isn't going to be offbeat. I mean, this isn't going to be on beat. I got to write it different. I got to do something like that. So then the jump to just actually putting out my own music, I don't know. It was just natural. I guess uh, that's part of like that. It's, it's, it could be called hardheadedness. I don't know. But I was just like, yo, I'm making a song. Why wouldn't I just put it out? <laughs> like, it's just like a common sense thing in my head, right? So then I would just go put these songs on message boards I'd send them to my friends, things like that. And it, it was never a thought of like, oh, I'm going to be a star or, oh, I'm so great or something like that. It was just like the natural progression of it to me. Yeah, I was like, you make music, you've recorded music. I don't want to hear my fucking self over and over. So how about you listen to me? And that's been kind of how I've done this throughout my career, if you'd call it that. Like, I just, I just put out music. I don't know much about marketing distribution. I firmly think you can either make the music or you can market the music. You can't do both. You rarely come across an artist that knows how to do both. So I make the music and then I just kind of put it out there. And if you like it, you like it. 
people who don't listen to rap can't necessarily appreciate it for the poetry and the self-expression. They just see like violence, drugs, and a lot of negativity. I know growing up, my dad used to get mad when I was listening to rap. And <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I know you've said like your parents didn't even see it as a phase. They just chose not to acknowledge it at all. Now that you've kind of built more of a career around rap, have your parents changed their perception around it? And how did you go about kind of encouraging them to do that? They ignored it from the time that I started. I mean, they, they clearly didn't like me listening to rap music. They didn't understand it, but they didn't like, they weren't too, you know, they weren't too crazy about it. They just ignored it. I wasn't the best student in school. So they, they were just like, he's just going to do whatever the fuck he wants to do. I have a younger brother. They were like, we'll focus on him instead. So for a long time, they just left me alone with my music. I performed at India Day in Times Square. And I think that was the first time that my dad called me right after that performance. And he was like, where did you learn how to do that? He was in awe of the fact that I got on the stage. And that wasn't a great performance. Like it was, it was not a great performance. But he was in awe of the fact that I even got on the stage and that I talked to the audience. There was like 20,000 people out there in Times Square. I talked to them. I did my songs. And I was cool. I admit it wasn't a great performance or whatever, but he was in awe of that shit. And I thought that was really funny. I was like, yeah, dad, this is what I've been doing for a really long time. And because then people started calling him because it was on TV or it was on the web or something. I don't know. Aunties and uncles were calling him like, yo, we saw Kanal. We saw Kanal. They weren't saying yo, but <laughs> they're like, we saw him. He got a sense of pride out of that. And that continued when uh, A.R. Rahman had me rap on some of his songs. He, you know, I've been blessed to be featured on three of his songs in Bollywood. First time I've been paid for anything having to do with my music. And once that happened, after me being on some AR tracks and me performing at IFA, people used to call my parents and be like, your son is a singer, right? I don't know why the fuck people even gave a shit to call my parents. Like, why you have the energy to worry about someone else's kid is beyond me. But people used to call my parents and say that, and they'd say it in like this like kind of making fun of it kind of way. I would laugh because I was like, I'm not a singer. This person's clearly a moron. But after all this stuff happening with AR, IFA, you know, my parents, they just naturally took it more seriously. We as Indians, we give that a bad rap that, oh, we're the only ones whose parents need that sort of validation to get us into the creative field. I'm a little older now after I've thought about it. Like, I think that's pretty relevant in all cultures, actually. Everyone's not overjoyed when you're like, oh, I want to be an artist. Whether you're white, black, Asian, Indian, whatever, they're not overjoyed. And some cultures do have it a little bit easier than others. But for the most part, everyone's not like super overjoyed about that shit. So when you get validation from a third party, like an AR Ramon, or like you're on TV or something, that's when, you know, my, it really changed for my parents. And I still take digs at them sometimes because they're like, yeah, we supported you. And I'm like, no, you didn't. Shut up. Like you did not support me till all this stuff happened. But I'm grateful for you not supporting me because it made me go harder at this. What does your brother do? He's an engineer. Yeah, but he DJed for a while. He was a he was a DJ. Uh, he went to school in Florida. So he, he DJed for a while. He tried to do some music stuff as well. Um, but he's an engineer. Yeah. Did it bother you at all that your parents were kind of more focused on him? Or did you just let it roll? Because you said it made you work harder. Yeah, I, I think it didn't really like outwardly affect me. I didn't I didn't honestly notice it either. I was just like, oh, good. They're leaving me alone. So I was like, cool. Later on, when my parents were like, you know, we didn't know how to raise a kid. You were our first kid. Like, we just kind of messed up a few things and we tried to correct it with your brother and like, all, you know, all this sort of stuff. Then I started realizing, yeah, they had at some point fully given up on me and it was fine. It was fine for me. I think I need that sort of 
freedom, right? When people are telling me to do something, I always do the opposite. It's like a natural thing for me. I hate I, I hate it because like I don't want people to think I do it on purpose. It's not on purpose. I just anytime anyone has ever tried to clamp down on me about something or about a viewpoint, I just go in the opposite direction. So them leaving me alone allowed me to kind of just do what I needed to do. You know, and if they had clamped down on me and paid hella attention to me and been kind of backwards about all this stuff, who knows what direction I would have gone in. I, I, I might have, instead of, you know, even slightly proceeding to get an education or something, I might have just dropped out fully out of like high school, out of college and been like, I'm pursuing music. Like that might have been me. I don't know. Yeah. So you mentioned A.R. Rahman, which is pretty funny. You're the second person in a row that I've had on that has performed with A.R. Kunal, I've heard you speak about wanting to show people that South Asians can rap, putting it out there and, and getting them to take you seriously. Does that stem from you being South Asian and wanting to prove yourself? Or is it more of like a raising the community type thing? I feel like it's a bit of both. I think we're all seen a certain way. And I've never liked that. I've never liked being seen as that sort of timid, keep your head down, just in the book sort of person. You know, I think you can't expect change for your culture when that's how you're looked at, because then no one cares when all you do is keep your head down all the time, right? Like no one is ever going to ask your your viewpoint or ask you what your story is or something. My music is very kind of raw sounding as compared to other artists, right? It may not be raw compared to hip hop artists in general, but at least compared to other brown artists, if you listen to my catalog, it's a lot more raw than what people are used to. And I've been told that that's a reason why I've been maybe held back for so long. And I firmly believe you have to have your own community on board before you can jump further and sort of expand to other communities and into the mainstream. What I've come across a lot in our culture, at least in our society, in, in, in you know Indian people, brown people, everyone's really fighting hard to be that number one, like the first person to break through. And I just think it's so stupid because you can't be a number one without having a two, three, four, five, and so on and so forth. You need those people. But no one seems to think about that. Everyone's like in their own little enclave, just trying their hardest to be number one instead of working together. And I think we really do need to work together because you just won't. You won't be able to, like, I use Jay Sean as an example. I've, I've used him as an example to countless people. It's not, you know, no shade at him because he's an iconic figure for all of us. But when he came out, the hits he was making were with Juggy D, with Rishi Rich. They had that Indian fusion, that sort of stuff. He got our community on board and then got down because that's when a label came through and was like, you know what? This guy's really harnessed this community and we can make some money here. And that's always the goal in the music business, right? So fundamentally, he knew, let's get this community and then we'll take it further. And then he got down. And I think his music kind of changed after that. He maybe turned his back on the community a little bit. That's how I kind of see it. And so I, I don't know, like who knows where his career would be today if maybe he added a little bit more in there or, or whatnot. But I do think fundamentally... You have to get your own people on board first, and then you can go further. And I've tried. Believe me, I've tried. Like, I'm like I'm talking to you on the podcast. I am down to talk to anyone. I'm down to help anybody. I respond to people professionally. I respond to people humbly. Like, I know that in a lot of my emails, like, if, 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 if I'm lying, I'm dying. Like, in my, in my emails, when I would reach out to people to collaborate, I would say, if you think I'm talented enough, then I'd love to do something with you. 
I never approached it from the position of, yo, man, I'm really tight. I got this shit. I think we should both get on it. I never did that. I would say something to that effect. And then I would say, if you think I'm good enough and I'm happy to send you more proof of my music and my videos and the level that I think I'm doing it on, then let's do something together. I did that forever. But it is not a coincidence that most of my albums have no features besides my wife. <laughs> my wife is a phenomenal singer and you know I can tell her, I can be like, Rhea, jump on this song and she'll do it. She can turn me down as well all the time, but it's no coincidence that I don't have a lot of features on my albums. It's not for lack of trying. I did try, but nobody here, even to this day, wants to work together. Jay Sean is from the UK, right? And I think just Indians have found more ground in the UK. So to your point, there isn't really a first here. And I don't know that there's going to be for a while because you can't, you can't when it's so fractured and everyone's separated, you can't be the first, you know, every so it's cyclical for us. Every couple of years, we get one guy that's kind of like that guy. And you see that there's certain people behind him, right? And you see certain machinations of things. And then lo and behold, you give it a year or two. And even that guy fucking disappears because there's never any outreach to get everyone under, you know, the umbrella. It's just every couple of years, we're going to get that brown guy who's like, oh, yeah, that's the rapper. That's the one he's going to go. And he never does. And he never will. It just never happens. You know, it's very cyclical for us. It's also interesting because Jay Sean's more recent stuff is like the first time he's singing in Hindi, right? Yeah. So maybe he's starting to catch on. Yeah, yeah. I've not been shy about saying that like artists can make mistakes. Everybody's human. You know what I mean? I do think it was kind of a mistake to to kind of go all the way in one direction, maybe forget a bit of the crowd that brought you there. And then now you're trying to regain that crowd again. But then I also get his side of it where it's like he's in a game where he's the only brown person. Which is fucked up, where we only get one at a time. That's insane. So one of the things that's interesting about that is that he's one of the few people that is actually like in front of the mic or in front of the camera. But there's a lot of South Asians that are kind of behind the scenes. For whatever reason, they haven't come out in front of the camera. And my theory is that, you know, in the NBA world, we talk about how Asian culture is a little bit hierarchical. People just kind of keep their heads down. They do what they're told. They don't want to ask to be in front of the camera. Do you think that is the case here or why is it that we're not seeing more Asian American artists? That's a really interesting thought that I hadn't heard before, but it makes complete sense that like the hierarchical sort of reverential to your elders sort of thing, it's ingrained in our culture, right? So like, I could see why we would rather be behind the scenes than in front of the camera. But I think a lot of it is just that a lot of these folks that are behind the scenes now that are in these high positions or that have, you know, kind of made it in these creative fields and stuff, they were raised by folks for whom this was not a choice being in the creative arts. Like our parents, they're like in their late 50s, 60s, like early 70s sort of thing. Now those for them, this was not a choice to do something creative. So when you've heard that all your life, even if you try to go off the beaten path, like most people, they won't, they'll hear it all their life and they'll go, okay, the arts isn't for me. But then there's some people who will still pursue it. They'll still go off the beaten path, but they will have had a lifetime of hearing, you can't do this. They're still going to take their chance. And so I think those people, they end up behind the camera because there's still a little bit of like, no, this isn't for me, but I'm going to try and keep true to my dream. And I'll do that by being behind the camera or by being the writer or by being, you know, what have you. I think that plays a pretty... That plays a pretty big role in it. When you're raised like that, when you're thought your whole life, you can't do this. You second guess yourself. I did it. 
I've sort of made my way in my professional career where I can kind of keep my feet in both worlds. But who's to say that if I had put my feet down in one world early enough, where I would be now? Yeah. So I do want to touch on that. But before that, I have a couple other questions just kind of in this realm. You've been working with some people for a really long time. And one of the people that comes to mind is Ku. He helped you out with Ganesh and the Dash. And I think he was back on politics uh, way back. So how do non-South Asians react to you? Your right arm is tatted. You're you're wearing a beanie. Like you're very hip hop in that sense. But (laughs) I don't think many rappers are like shooting videos with Hondas and a lawyer on the side. So I'm kind of curious what their reaction is. That's really funny that you say that because every time I've ever set foot in a studio and said, I rap, and this is what I would do. I'd literally walk into studios. Again, I just want to make music. So I'm like, I don't have any embarrassment about it. I'm just like, hey, I'll just walk into a studio. Anytime I've ever done that, people have looked at me like I'm a fucking alien. And then when I go in the booth, I will tell you 100%. 10 out of 10 times, these same people, their jaws fucking drop, right? The amount of non-South Asians who've recognized early on what I can do, the ability that I have, it's been insane. And that's been like a saving grace to me a lot because a lot of times you question yourself. I've been doing this for damn near 15 years and I wouldn't say that I have the support of the Brown community, but I didn't come up around homeboys who had their own studios So I've always had to go outside of my comfort zone. I've had to go to like really crazy studios in Philly or crazy studios in New York or crazy studios in Virginia and like interact with people who don't believe me and make them believers. I've had to do it all the time. These little things like when I've walked into a booth and a dude's been like, all right, go ahead, rap on your little song over here. And then I do it and the dude's jaw is just like fucking dropped to the floor. Like I've had people go wait, do that again. I need to take a video of this shit. So that's really, that's really funny. Like I get one sort of response from non-South Asians. And then, like I said, from South Asians, they're not necessarily believers yet, but we'll see. On that note, you mentioned A.R. Rahman. You performed with him at MetLife. You've been on some tracks with him. You and Rackstar, who's out in the UK, have done a collab album together. It it seems to me, and I'm kind of curious if you agree, that your music is almost more accepted by artists outside of the US. I think that's totally true. I think there's some there's a rule in in hip hop that a lot of people say where it's like you get more love outside your own town than you do inside. I think that that's a fair thing. I've seen famous rappers get booed in New York when they're from New York. Like it it's just a thing. You get more love outside than you do inside. I think there's an added nuance to that with us being South Asian because yeah, I get a lot more support in India and in the UK and like Canada than I've ever gotten in the US. I don't know why that is. I just know they've always they've always respected what I do. They've always seen what it is that I do and been like, "Yo, I want to be a part of that. I want to, you know, I want to work together with that." Whereas here in the US, It's like that rat race, I think, going on where it's like everyone wants to be number one. So nobody works together. Working with AR has been one of the most life-changing things of my life. Um, Life-changing things of my life. What a terrible sentence. But like, this is a guy who's like 50 in India. He's the god of music who heard my shit and was like, yo, I want that dude on my tracks. That gave me a newfound sort of courage in myself. Because like I said, the Indian community here can't even hear that and support me, right? But this older guy, significantly older guy, heard me rap and was like, yo, what you're doing is awesome. And I need some of that. So that's A, been like so life-changing for me. But B, 
he's the standard by which I judge other people. This man has Oscars. He's, I think he's got Grammys. I'm not sure. He's got mad awards, all sorts of awards. He is the God. And he treats me like, I don't even know, man. Like I walked into a meeting once that he was in, that he was having because I had just gotten off a plane and I was coming to his studio and he stopped his meeting to ask me if, if I needed anything, if I, if I had had coffee and I had lunch, anything like that. I was like, dog, don't worry about me. I'll just hide in a corner. I'm okay. You're A.R. Ramon. Like, you're having a professional meeting right now. Don't even worry. But that's that's the type of guy he is. He's such a nice, humble, respectful dude. He cares about people. And he's the standard by which I judge all these other people out here. And it's why, if you ever go on my Instagram or you ever hear me ranting or something like that, it's why I call a lot of people fucking fraudulent. Because they have egos and they've done nothing compared to what this man has done. And they're just out here just fronting like their shit doesn't stink. Like they don't want to work with you. They just don't even want to be nice. They just don't even want to be nice. Meanwhile, this guy, I can't say enough good things about him. It's insane. So, Kanal, you also have a day job as a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> you went into law to avoid disappointing your parents, or I think you've even described it as you wanted to give them something specific to be proud of. Yeah. And I think many South Asians can relate to that. But as someone that's been rapping since sixth grade, it seems like entertainment law would have been the obvious choice. But your first job in law was with a divorce practice. So can you kind of speak more about that? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, when I got out of college, I got out as an English English major, right? I started as a bio major because I was supposed to go to med school. <laughs> I failed out of college twice and it just was not a choice for me because I couldn't. I, could, I would not wake up for 8 a.m. chem lab. I wouldn't pay attention in bio 152 like I failed everything right there was just no choice when I finally decided I'm gonna do me I'm gonna do what I like I like English I like to read speak write that sort of stuff I got on the dean's list you know and I graduated and I thought I'm gonna work in music didn't think it through all the way because I was like how are you gonna get into music with an English degree there's a lot of people vying for these roles at record labels and you know it's a very sexy sort of career uh, I didn't think it all the way through so I was out there trying to meet people applying to roles, never hearing back. I was applying on Craigslist to things. And this one firm uh, responded back to me and they were like, hey, come on in, we'll interview you. And I got the job. And then I was their office manager. It was a small, small firm. For once, my parents were like, okay, you got a job. Cool. So I started doing that. At the same time, I'm still hanging around studios. I'm like a studio rat. And a lot of times people would come up to me pretty much every time I was in the studio and there were other people there, they'd come up to me and they'd just be like, Kanal, I got this contract. What does it mean? Or Kanal, what's a copyright? Kanal, what's a trademark? And I don't know why they asked me, you know, to this day, I still don't know. I think it's because I was the brown dude in the room. I legitimately think it was because I was the brown dude in the room. But I noticed that maybe there was a way, and this is where my parents' practicality kind of got to me. Maybe there was a way for me to meld these things. I was a studio rat. I'm a creative but maybe this won't pay the bills forever. So I'm working at a law firm. It's doing divorces. This is something I don't like whatsoever. But maybe I can go to law school and I can learn entertainment law. And so I can help these artists when I get out. And that's what I did. So then after that, I went to, I went to law school, got out. And again, similarly, had not thought it through. Like, how are you going to get into entertainment law? It's a very high barrier for entry to get into entertainment law. It is kind of insane. Like when you get out of law school, it's not like med school where you can focus on something. You're a general practitioner when you get out of law school. And if you don't get into what you want to do very quickly, 
you start being pegged as something else. And so I knew there was a clock running against me. I was applying everywhere, but unfortunately still couldn't get a role because barrier for entry is so high. Uh, so I went back to that divorce firm and they were really gracious. They were like, yeah, we know you're competent. We'd love to have you back. You can keep applying to entertainment jobs and work for us at the same time. And if you get something, go with God. So that's why, you know, I, I was doing family law for a while. It definitely hipped me to the fact that I do not want to do this for the rest of my life. But they were gracious enough to let me stay there until I was finally able to land something in entertainment. Now that you've transitioned and you're working for companies like Universal, Vice, Apple, working as a lawyer for these companies, do you feel like you're pursuing your passion for music or do you just feel like I'm just doing law? You know, I it's a good question. I I don't think that, I don't know. It feels like I was able to meld it together, my passion and getting a steady paycheck. I feel I was able to do that. Ganesh on the Dash is the first track off a project that actually discusses this, you know, in, in, in a tangential sort of way to the idea that I used to work in Universal Music Group for like two and a half, three years. They own a whole building in Midtown Manhattan. So for two and a half, three years, I used to walk through the hallways and see people and talk to people and advise people who could change my life. They could very easily change my life. But even being inside that building, I did not run around screaming that I'm a musician. I did not run around sending my music to people. Like it just wasn't a thing that I did. It's not a thing that I do. I didn't do it at Vice either. You know, I, I didn't do it at my current job. I, I've, I'm very new, so I'm definitely not doing it. But no, I, it's weird. Like I, I've never been that person. To some extent, when you're in entertainment law, when you're working for some of these companies, you always have a creative side to you. You know, you, you're working for these companies because you have some sort of creative thing. And I never wanted to be that guy who was like, hey, hey, look at me. Like, yeah, I also got music, you know, because I figure people are dealing with that enough every day in those positions. So the law gig allows me to stay sane because I'm working on creative stuff and I'm advising creatives. But really, it's just a uh, it's a way that I fund my habit <laughs> of, of, you know, creating music, creating content, stuff like that. It's interesting. Creating and legal are two very different worlds, but... To your point, there's some synergies. Can you tell us about the PlayStation deal? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The um, I'm trying to think of like where the other synergies would be, but that's that was something you know. Like I got one of my songs very early on in my career through sheer annoying the music person on that project. I was able to get one of my songs on a PlayStation Three game. It's called Haze. It was supposed to be the PlayStation's answer to Halo. Didn't happen, but you can still find the game. I did have a copy, so I heard myself in it, and it was it was cool. It was one of those situations where I look back on it now, I was given a one-page license or one-page contract, and I signed over all my rights. And I became one of those artists that I now seek to protect. I didn't have any education about that stuff. They didn't care to explain it to me, nor were they going to, which it's just so wrong. And I think that a lot of people talk about it nowadays. Like, yes, you can take all my rights, and you could take everything from me, but why? Why do you need to do that? Even as the business, why do you need to take everything? But they did. And so my song is out there. I got paid, I think, one pound <laughs> for it. I think it was it was British. So I got paid one pound for it. Uh, and that was my very first run-in with how artists kind of get, they're the first people to get fucked, honestly. Another thing that's interesting to me is that if you look at the previous generation, people that wanted to be artists, they just wouldn't go into it, right? And now if you look at South Asians today, many of us are kind of doing this balance 
of I'm going to do something stable like medicine or for me, my MBA, for you, law. And then on the side, I'm going to do this creative project, whether it's a podcast or music. So I'm curious, is your aspiration to go full time or do you see yourself kind of holding this balance in the long run? No, I'd love to go full time. You know, I think that's the goal for any of us. But I, I, I fundamentally think that like jumping 100% into the creative fields, I don't know that it's the smartest decision. You know, I read it in some book once and it really clarified that thought to me. Um, I wish I remembered where I read it. But just like a lot of the successful people in life, if you if you really look at their story, they were the folks who in the creative fields, they were the folks who were able to straddle both worlds until the moment and they were able to know the moment when the benefit for crossing over fully into the creative side outweighed the risk of doing that. I think that if you jump 100% into the creative stuff, we've romanticized that a lot as a society, as a whole, as humanity. Like we've romanticized that a lot, that person who goes 100 for everything, but it's not a good method of doing it. When you think about how many people have been successful that way, it's actually a way smaller percentage than you realize. Most other people, everyone's not a star, right? Like it doesn't work for most people. And that's an objective thing. So I thought to, in my head, I was like, A, I can help artists with this knowledge that I have, but B, I can also fund all my creative stuff. I don't want to be out there when I'm like 40, 45 years old. I didn't, you know, I went 100% like being, uh, say, a painter or something, didn't get an education, didn't get some form of upward mobility, and it didn't work out for me. I don't want to be in that position. And I don't think it's a smart position. I don't think it's a position we should tell other people to do. We should tell people like, yeah, get an education or not even an education because as we're learning nowadays, it's not super important to even have that, but get some means of sustaining yourself. Find that means. Don't rely on the art to sustain you from the jump because it may not. It just may not do that. So I want to pivot a little bit. Something I find interesting is your relationship with South Asian culture because in the culture, there's such an emphasis on respect. Respect your elders, respect God. It can feel very serious. People tend to be very serious about South Asian culture, but I find that you're much more playful with it, right? I've seen some of the memes on your Instagram, the art on your album covers. So just talk to me about your relationship with South Asian culture and how it does or doesn't show up in your day to day. It's funny that you say, you know, a lot of people are very serious about it. Like, I don't think I'm one of those people who's very serious about it. Like, I've read the Bhagavad Gita. I've read, like, the Ramayana and stuff. Like, I've read it just because, like, I said earlier, like, I like reading. So I've read it. Do I, have I distilled the things out of it? Or can I quote it ad nauseum to you? Nah, probably can't do that shit. Nor would I care if anyone could do that to me. Because to me, that's, like, never signified anything. Like, like good, good for you. You're able to memorize a quote. I'm not doing like artis and pujas every day. I don't think I know when events are coming up unless my mom has told me. I have that little shrine that we all have. Rhea's usually the one that's like, hey, it's Durga Puja. We need to do something. Or like, hey, this is coming up. We need to do something. So we do stuff and I'm all for it. The one thing I'm fundamentally against is just respecting people just because they're my elders. Like, that's a no-no for me. I never do that shit. I've never understood why I'm supposed to touch your foot. I don't understand any of this stuff. If I do feel it, I will do it. You know what I mean? But most of the time, I don't because respect is to be earned. It's not just to be fucking freely given. And I think in our culture, a lot of it is like, no, 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 you just have to respect them because they're older. No, that's not a thing for me. So that's definitely something that I fight back about a lot. 
you're Gujarati, so I don't. Do you speak Gujarati? What are some of the ways that you actually retain that culture? Unfortunately, I don't speak Gujarati. I understand it. I have slowly gained it back. I've heard that I used to speak it fluently until I was like 10. And then I, I don't know why I stopped. I just stopped, you know? It's weird, and I wish I hadn't. I really wish I retained it. I've been looking for a tutor, actually. Uh, I found somebody recently, so I may be taking classes soon. Because I know it's in my head. I understand it, so it's in my head. I just have some block that doesn't allow me to speak it. And it's not like my parents only spoke English at home. Like, they spoke Gujarati at home and i used to respond to them in gujarati and then one day it just fucking stopped and i've never i've never understood why why that's the case but keeping the culture alive is important to me you know but it's important that i do it in a way that's comfortable for me that's why a lot of my music a lot of what i do has never really featured indian concepts I used to think people would go overboard with that shit when I was first starting out. Like they would put bhangra hooks on everything and tumbis and tablas. And that was like, hey, look at me. I'm Indian. I hated that. I'm not against putting a tabla in a song. It sounds dope. Like, it, But if it's not natural, it never really, I never, never really felt like it was for me, right? Like now I see people, you know, in like making rap videos with kurtas on and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know. Like I... Some of it feels so forced, and that's never been my way. My way has been more of, I keep the culture alive in creative ways. Like, my one album where I decided, hey, I see a lot of people doing this pandering sort of shit, you know, with the Indian culture. Let me see if I can kind of restyle it my own way. I had a, I had a project called The Letters from Agrabah, and it was basically me reinterpreting Aladdin because I looked at it as, hey, this is a brown guy going from rags to riches. Let me tell his story. And... If you listen to every track on that album, it's all influenced from Aladdin. It's all influenced from the concepts, the themes. When I was creating that album, I asked myself, are there Indian vinyls? Because <laughs> I've never heard of a vin an Indian vinyl. And sure enough, I went crate digging and I found Indian vinyls. And so a lot of that project is me sampling old Indian songs like Ravi Shankar or like mantras and things like that and finding a way to meld it together that didn't feel like pandering. And, and interestingly enough, a lot of the samples I've lifted are from AR songs. So I do remember as just like a funny, funny sort of vignette about it is that when he first heard some of my music, A, he told me he had seen it on MTV Indies, which was blew my mind. He was like, yeah, I've seen I've seen you before. And I was like, oh, shit. But B, you know, I had like very prominently sampled, I think, from Thal and from Dilse in my songs. And he was listening and I was like, hey, man, like. We could figure that all out if you want. Like, I didn't mean to take it like that. Like, it was it was really funny. It's just a it's a funny story about how. And then that was my way of like, you know, showing the culture too. though. Those are iconic songs. And I was like, we can make some hard hip hop shit with this, you know, with, without being all like crazy. We could do it. Ganesh on the Dash is my attempt at that again, too. Like that song. I think a big part of why our culture identified with it, at least in the short term right now, is because it's called Ganesh on the Dash. And that's on purpose. That's me just saying, I'm going to write Ganesh in this song. And I'm going to watch how many of you motherfuckers click on this because of that. And that's what that's what happened. And I'm going to show you the Ganesh on my dashboard. And I'm going to see how many of you love this shit. You know what I mean? But nothing else is overtly Indian about that song, right? I touch on certain concepts. That second verse is like my most favorite verse probably in the world. Where I touch on some real heavy shit about immigrants. But beyond that, I talk about Ganesh in the first verse real quick. And then at the end, I talk about rotis. That's it. 
does it nothing else you know i'm not trying to hit you over the head with like look at me eating my samosa here in the video i'm so indian you should love my shit i don't do that that's not how i do it i love that concept so much so i have a, a ganesh on my dash that my dad put there right yeah uh-huh. but to me it was more like i just left it there as opposed to me going out and getting one and putting it there and yeah. so that's kind of the beauty of the song is like so many of us can relate to that almost i don't want to say superficial but like that service level showing of the culture but then the song itself is something different kind of like the person right like you came into my car you would see that ganesh but then as you get to know me i'm like not what you would expect i'm not eating samosas for lunch sometimes sometimes but yeah yeah exactly no exactly and it's funny because i i went out and got that ganesh you know what i mean i I knew that I needed one, but I didn't necessarily know why. I just knew it was a thing when I first got my car, and and so I got it. I think that's the same for a lot of us. That's kind of how I keep the culture alive, though. I try to do it, but not in like a pandering sort of way. So on that point of not pandering, but also just like viewing the culture a little bit differently, you recently created this documentary or this docu-short called Seeing God. It's about not exactly Hinduism, but a Hindu character. Tell us why that story is a little bit different. It's the story of a real life woman who who lives in Brooklyn, who officiated my wedding, who's a Hindu priestess, which when I was planning my wedding, I had turned to Rhea one day and I was just like, hey, do Hindu priestesses exist? Like, do women priests exist? And Rhea was like, I don't think so. And I just did what I do. And I Googled it, found an article, reached out to the author played a couple of games of telephone and finally got to Prathima, who is the subject of this docu-short called Seeing God. She's a queer, dark-skinned Hindu priestess who lives in Brooklyn. She's got like a nose ring. She got tattoos. Like she's our age. Like she's in our age range. It's something that completely blew my mind. And it's something that really resonated with me. And I thought we need to tell this story. I mean, A lot of my music has been telling of the Brown story. I want to be able to tell that story. This is just me moving it into another medium. So we went out there and we filmed Prathima and we asked her about her life. You know, we asked her about the things that come with being not only female, but being queer and being dark skinned. There's so much to unpack there. And I believe that that's important that people need to see that. So it's called Seeing God and we're releasing it February 26th. With this podcast, I'm trying to tell unique stories and obviously her story is unique and I loved how she talked about inclusion. Just her identity, her being in the temple is enough to make other people feel included. Yeah. So super interesting story. I am curious though, like you're a musician for the most part and then you're transitioning to this new medium. You could have really picked any topic, right? And I'm especially curious about this because you funded it yourself. Why did you choose this topic specifically? What stood out to you? I just think that we've all been fed a version of Hinduism and been told that we can't have an opinion on it for as long as we've been living. It's it's kind of like that whole parents just go, you don't know anything about it. Don't talk about it. Right. I'm vehemently against that. You know, like when somebody tells me that, like I've said, you know, in this, in this episode, I go left, I go somewhere different. And, and I think like, no, why can't I? And so I thought back on my experiences of going to temple and even of getting engaged. You know, you you have the pundit who you never know his name. It's always a him. You never know his name. He just kind of whispers some shit. You give him a banana and like some shit happens. You know what I mean? Like that that's kind of all of our experience with it. Nobody really knows much. And even if you try to ask questions, and I did at my engagement, they don't really have any answers for you. Like the dude who did my engagement, I don't even think he knew my name. 
It was ridiculous. So I was just like, we need to tell this story to just let people know that there is another side to this. When I saw Prathima officiate something at her temple, it was like a night and day difference. I was like, this is a temple that I would love to be a part of. The people were just like, they're singing, they're dancing. She's explaining everything in concepts that I understand. The fact that she's as young as she is and looks how she looks makes me want to be here because I feel like I can actually ask her questions and she'll give me an answer. And I just wanted to start that conversation. I think it's important, you know, whether this does well or doesn't do well, like that was never the point of it. Like getting the money back for creating it was never the point of it. And it didn't cost all that much to create this. It takes a little bit of logistical know-how. And we we messed up throughout, you know, but we learned a whole lot. I realized, like, you can spend so much money on stupid shit. And I do. I've done that. Or I could just put it towards something like this that can possibly elevate a consciousness, can elevate people. So that's, you know, that's what I did. It really wasn't, it wasn't crazy breaking the bank or anything. It wasn't like $10,000. It wasn't even $5,000. But I would have spent that on like, well, what would I have spent that on? Like fucking shoes or something? Like, So instead, I, I spent it on telling somebody's story. And I think that's money well spent. It's super admirable. And I think a lot of creators can relate to that because most of us, when we start, we're sinking our own money into whatever that is, right? Yeah, you have to. I, I want to hone in on the engagement for a second. Yeah. Bria, your wife is also Indian, but Indian culture is just treated very homogeneously. If we go a little further, like Ria's Bengali and you're Gujarati, mm. how much did y'all bond over shared Indian culture? And when you see her Bengali culture, do you feel like it's something familiar or is it like exposure to something completely new? We didn't bond over a shared Indian culture so much as we bonded over the fact that we're both creatives. Me ending up with Rhea makes the most sense to anybody who's paid attention to who I am since I was a child. The fact that she's a singer... That makes perfect sense. That was gonna happen. But it's not just the fact that she's a singer. It's the fact that like I can say things like, hey, I think this Prathima person is a really cool. This is a really cool idea. We should create a video. We should create a documentary about it. And Rhea just goes, yeah, we should. And that's it. That's the thing that we really bond over, which is like that we don't believe anything is unattainable. We know that we can do it. And because I am the way that I am and I'm kind of hard headed and I'm kind of I see things from like the left as opposed to, you know, what people tell me, like when she has doubts about things, I'm able to be like, dude, these people inside these companies are not smarter than us. We can fucking do it. Right. And when I have doubts about stuff, the culture doesn't like what I do and stuff. Rhea can be like, no, you are amazing. Like you are good at what you do. And you've been doing this for like 10 years. Who else has been doing that? You know, so we we keep each other good that way. We can talk about things that have happened in both of our cultures that are commonplace and they, and they make us laugh and stuff like the patriarchy and like uncles and like this and that. That shit, you know, that shit's funny. That's always super funny that it's like similar. But the cultures aren't all too different. There's like certain aspects of it, right? Like Bengali people really appreciate Durga Puja. I didn't even know kind of what that was until I met Rhea and I saw how serious they take Durga Puja, right? Like I just thought Diwali, that's all we do. All of us just celebrate Diwali. It's been cool to learn the little nuances of her culture. Like when I walked in, I think when we got engaged, there was a bunch of aunties there that did this uh, warding off evil sort of thing. It's called Uluation. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, it they just, they stand there and they go like that. Like they do some crazy shit. No one told me that was going to happen. And I just walked into the house and just 
like nine aunties started doing that in unison at me and i thought some shit was going down um there's a video of it it's really funny because Rhea didn't tell me either she she knew it was gonna happen she didn't tell me so that's funny that was funny to get used to i make fun of them eating a lot of fish or liking fish because that's just stereotypical and me being an asshole that's fun it's cool it's like we we've got a few little nuances here and there it's been nice it's been really interesting so the last question or last couple of questions I want to touch on, Kunal, are like, when I see you and Rhea, I think of Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell. Cute couple that's also in the same profession. Rianjali is also the daughter of a famous Bengali folk singer. So she comes from a, a music background, whereas you came from almost a, a background that kind of pushed music away. So I'm wondering how that affected both of your approaches to music. Maybe she always knew she was going to go into the musical field. And then also just like, what is it like being married to another artist? <laughs> it's funny. She she actually did not always know that she was going to go into music, even though her dad was, you know, heavily in, in music. And I think it's it's for that reason, because he saw the pitfalls of it. So, you know, Rhea didn't pursue it, to be honest, until she'll say it herself, until she kind of like met me, right? And then when she met AR and got that kind of validation, she was able to really go forward. But I... I think I was one of the one of the first few people that really pushed her to be like, yo, you have an amazing talent. You need to get this out. So I, I did want to say that because that, that's a really that's a really interesting aspect of it. Whereas me, I've just been pushing making music. I don't know what fuels it. I don't know what powers it. I think it re what really powers it is the fact that most people think I can't do it. I really think that innately somewhere inside me, I'm just like, eh, well, I'm just going to keep going then. I don't come from a music family in any way, shape, or form. They try to beat it out of me, in fact. <laughs> so that that's how that's how our two worlds collide. And it's been the greatest thing to have her as a collaborator, to have her as a person that I can toss ideas off of, to have her, you know, she manages my stuff and I manage her stuff. Like when she's having a lot of inquiries come in, I'm the one who's kind of handling her management. When I have some stuff coming in, she's the one handling my management. We just kind of, we don't need to explain anything to each other. You know what I mean? Because we're both in the same sort of creative field. We both use the same strategies, straight, same apps. We understand the same concepts. So we don't even have to explain anything. We just step in for each other when we see that we need it. People will say they don't want to work with their spouse, but it sounds like for the two of you, it's almost strengthened your relationship more. Oh, yeah, for sure. Rhea's cool as shit. Why would I not want to work with her? Like, she, she's really cool. And uh, she's, like, very different. She talks mad shit. Like, she's from Queens. She's 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 good people. I definitely, I'm, I'm cool to work with Rhea for the rest of my life. In fact, I hope that that's what happens and we don't just, like, get on each other's nerves at some point. It, might, it could happen. You never know, right, in reality. But for... For a current time and what I would hope to happen, yeah, she's she's cool as hell. We're 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 cool, and I think she thinks I am, but I don't know. Well, hopefully that cabinet influencer thing doesn't take off. <laughs> yeah, and then she leaves me behind as a cabinet influencer. Yeah. So where can people find you, Kanal? Where can they find Callie? Where can they find mild mannered and timid? So yeah, I go by the rap name Callie. So you can find me. Instagram's probably what I'm the most heaviest on. I'm at Callie Say. So that's K A L Y S A Y. From there, you can really just you can deep dive into any sort of, you'll find a video that looks like a music video and you'll be pushed right to YouTube, you know, like that sort of thing. But on, you know, on Spotify, you can search Kali, K-A-L-Y, put Ganesh on the dash right after that. You'll come directly to all my different projects. I've had like six or seven projects out. YouTube slash Kali, D-S-I-D-E. That's where you'll find all my music videos. That's all my music stuff. And then Mild Mannered and Timid, 
again, we're pretty heavy on Instagram as opposed to other places, and that's at mild-mannered-timid. If you search that, you'll find all the info you need about our podcast that we do every week, about our docu-short that we're going to be releasing soon. You'll find some other docu-shorts that we worked on or surrounding, you know, cooking and the recipes that we're losing in our parents' generation. Yeah, we're out here. We're we're pretty reachable. You can, you know, you'll you can find us if you want to. And if you think something was interesting that I said, please do reach out. We're me, Rhea, Kush, we're all reachable and we're happy to talk and chop it up about stuff. Gotta keep collabing, right? hundred percent. That's the only way we get through it. Well, I'm stoked you came on. Thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm I'm happy that somebody wanted to talk to me. You know what I mean? I hope I gave some hope I gave some good answers. <laughs> you did great. Hey, it's Suraj. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for reaching the end of the episode. Hope you enjoyed our conversation today. If you did, please take a moment to share with a friend or leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to follow along in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. See you on the next episode. Stay well.